Hello and welcome to the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. I'm your host, Olivia Cummings, founder of the jewellery brand Cleopatra's Bling. This month, we return for season two of the Cleopatra's Bling podcast, where we continue to meet the creatives and craftspeople who inspire our artisanal jewellery collections. Last season, we met with a beekeeper poet, a wild woman dancer and a mermaid historian. I met our guest today at a crucial moment in my life. I had returned to Melbourne after 13 years living in Paris, Istanbul and Naples, but chose to return to Australia to be close to my family. It was a sometimes delightful, sometimes very difficult homecoming, and one of the highlights has been my friendship with the ARIA award-winning singer-songwriter Julia Stone. She's a solo artist, and you also know her as one half of the beloved duo Angus and Julia Stone. Her new album is coming out in February, entitled 60 Summers, which she describes as a labour of love. Julia was born in Sydney, New South Wales. As a singer and multi-instrumentalist, she became well-known to Australian and international audiences on the release of her breakout album, Down the Way, a collection of poetic, emotive songs created with her brother, Angus. Julia and I bonded over the strength and artistic healing that comes out of heartbreak, a love of collecting and fashion, and the need to make hard choices to find real gold. So, we are here today with Julia Stone. Hello, Olivia. Hi, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Um, We've known each other for a very long six months Mm -hmm. of intense friendship. A hundred years of six months. Yes. Um, So I thought I would invite you onto our podcast as the first post-lockdown interviewee in light of the um, collaboration we're working on with jewellery. So that's exciting. Um, And also your new album, obviously. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that. Okay. Um, So you could start off, I guess, by telling us a little bit about your backstory. Um, I know that's a very broad question, but if you could tell us about how you discovered your love for music and... We'll take it from there. Okay. Well, um, I guess it is a big question because it started a long time ago, my love of music. And a lot of it had to do with my mum and dad, who both love music. My dad, he still plays in the same band that he played in when I was a kid. And he was always gigging around and the band would rehearse at our house. So we had these four school teachers who would come around to the house to do their real love and do their real passion which was music and my earliest memories of seeing them rehearse it it always felt like when they were around there was a sense of joy in the home and that wasn't something that was always in our home growing up and music whenever it was happening particularly live music it felt like this moment of um, togetherness and relief and joy and the same goes for my mum She was never a professional musician, but she always sang around the house. And it was the same feeling of when she was singing, she was okay. And I think that sort of infused in us kids uh, a real love of music. They also took us to a lot of festivals, um, to music concerts of all different genres. And then, of course, I got to the age of, I think I was 12 when I fell in love with the Spice Girls. (laughs) And I was um, particularly a big fan of Baby Spice. I felt of kindred spirits and I decided at that point I was going to be a pop star and I formed a band with two friends that I think were probably looking back not as willing as I was to go all the way (laughs) 
but I was very serious. I was a serious cookie and I sort of thought, let's, um, let's make it. 12, 13, 14, I had a, um, a pop group called FaZe, spelled F-A-Z-E. Um, it's pretty edgy stuff. And we rehearsed in the garage and we went to Supre and bought matching outfits and wrote really um, very pop, pop songs. And we performed them for whoever would listen and then my dad's friend who's the guitarist in Backbeat my dad's band he helped me start making backing tracks so that was my first time in a recording studio I had all these lyrics and these melodies that I was writing but I had no way of putting them down because I played the trumpet in the school band I didn't play a guitar or a piano which is useful in songwriting so I I was writing a cappella melody lines and lyrics and Jeff Longhurst, he he worked at Mossman High School and I used to get the bus after school to Mossman to make backing tracks for my songs so I could press play on the CD player and, and sing my songs. I mean, I was an insane kid. Like I had such weird confidence. I used to get up in front of the whole school and sing my my own compositions a cappella, <laughs> a cappella with no music in front of the whole school um, and... I know I know people were making fun of me, um, but I I just didn't care. I just thought it was really important. And anyway, sorry, I'm laughing, remembering people saying stuff and going like, "Oh, you don't know." I'm writing songs about freedom. Um, <laughs> anyway, so then that went on, and eventually the other two girls in the band they dropped off, and it was just me. And at that point, I realized. I maybe didn't want to be a pop star. I started getting involved in other things like falling in love. And um, and I, I felt like all of a sudden there was this much bigger avenue of creativity to follow. And that was being around humans in another way, a deeper way, which I only had experienced when I fell in love for the first time. And uh, my very first boyfriend, he played the drums. And so we explored music together and he went on to have a career in music in a band and I sat on the outskirts of that life I didn't really have um much ambition I just followed him around and I yeah I I sort of lost my songwriting and my desire to write a little bit in those years and as happens I think with not everybody but some young people when they first fall in love it becomes so all-consuming that it um everything it took over everything it was sort of all about him and it wasn't until he broke up with me that I found things again and Mm. one of those things that I found was my love of music and the pain of losing him and heartbreak and my parents divorcing at the same time and it was all sort of like the world falling apart or so it felt and songwriting came back to me as a way to get some of those feelings out um I bought a ticket to South America and I bought a guitar in Bolivia and I taught myself to play guitar and started writing songs and those songs were the beginning of now what has become a life in music so how did how do you think you first discovered your confidence that gave you the ability to sing in front of a whole school because that's kind of a rare attribute for such a young girl My parents, they were um, a little bit like stage parents, you Mm. know, so (laughs) 
um, I was acting when I was six. The first uh, TV show I did was a country practice. I don't know if you remember that television show. I don't think I do. <laughs> <laughs> it was a hospital out in the country and I... Um, it started because we all were put into acting classes. Mum said it would be good for our confidence at school to mm. learn how to act. So the teacher who ran these classes started a casting agency called Ankle Biters. And she then said, you know, I'd like um, Angus, Catherine and Julia to start auditioning for for jobs. And my mum said, um, of course they'll do it. You know, of course they'll, they'd love to. And of course... We didn't really know what it was, but we started going for castings. And so I got the role of Kylie. I think her name was Kylie Toms, a six-year-old girl who was getting her tonsils out. So from a very young age, I was in front of a lot of people. It was like on a set and I was having to do this, you know, performance of, I didn't understand what acting was. I just Mm. knew that I had to say these lines and I had to remember them and I had to say them after the guy said his lines and, um, and that was my first experience. And then I did a bunch of commercials and then I ended up in a film when I was nine years old and that took me out of school for two months. And it was all of those things that led to this feeling of it's okay to be in front of people and to, um, yeah, to say whatever you want to say. And I, I was very confident as a kid because of that. I, I loved talking on the school assembly. I, I did speeches and, um, Oddly, now I look back and I think I probably was more of an introvert naturally, but mm. I was just pushed into that. Um, my dad's band as well, They once they realized I liked to sing, they used to get me up to sing Van Morrison's Moondance at their gigs. I remember being nervous the first time I got up with the band to sing. It was like my boyfriend at the time from uh, primary school, you know, who I held hands with, was sitting in the front at the Newport Market Day. And I was really like, oh, this is a big deal. You know, I had, um, I think I was wearing uh, like a sort of maroon set that I had asked for to wear for the concert from David Jones. And that was a huge deal. And I remember saying, I have this concert that I'm doing at the market day. It's pretty serious. And my mom still tells this story of like taking me shopping to um, Ruringa Mall and saying you can pick anything you want. And I, I walked to David Jones and there was this mannequin. Sorry, I'm finding this so funny. <laughs> there was this mannequin in the window and it was like mum said it was the worst outfit she'd ever seen. But I just thought that's the best thing I've ever seen. It was like this pirate, like the Seinfeld pirate shirt with like a maroon, a maroon vest and maroon um, culottes. And mum just said it was so funny. She said, yeah, if that's what you really want, you can have it. <laughs> and I got that, but I had no shoes to wear with it because we couldn't afford the shoes. But I wore my school shoes with this outfit. It was like terrible. But anyway, I got up and I sang the song. And that was my first experience performing um, music as a singer. But um, yeah, I think just I say this to a lot of people who ask about being nervous and performing. It's just repetition. It's like anything. Mm. You do it and you do it again and you do it again. And eventually I still get nervous, but the nerves are not as strong as they were when I was 13, 14, 15. Years of doing it just slowly eats away at that feeling. Mm. Okay. And do you find it more nerve wracking in front of strangers or people you know? Mm. I think in front of people I know. Yeah, I think that's pretty common. I feel the same. Yeah. Doing anything in front of people I know. 
So what did putting your music out in the world for the first time feel like? I suppose officially, once you'd officially signed. Mm. I think it was so, um, it was such a slow process for Angus and I to have a career in music. We, um, we borrowed money off our mum and made our first EP, Chocolates and Cigarettes. We had this EP, we'd sell it at gigs and people slowly started to come to more gigs. We'd play in front of 50 people, then we'd play in front of 70 people, then we'd play in front of 100 people. And our manager, who came on board really early, knew that we had to go overseas. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So she um, she took us to live in Notting Hill in London. We lived, uh, the five of us, in a apartment in Notting Hill. And we started playing open mic nights and Independiente, who was the label that signed us, put out chocolates and cigarettes officially into the world, you know, and sort of promoted it. And it was great. It felt like for the first time we had real support and, um, you know, we got a few plays on radio here and there, but it was kind of like as we started to have success overseas, things started to pick up in Australia naturally. It was this sort of like strange thing that started to happen and... But it was really slow. It was like we made chocolates and cigarettes. Then we made a second EP, Heart Full of Wine. So we made a book like this and we got a deal in America and Australia. And then it was another two years after that we made Down the Way. And that was the song that changed things in a more serious way. Angus had written a song called Big Jet Plane. And then that was, we went from playing in front of 700 people to playing in front of 3,000 people. And that was like, oh, wow. We had... um, we had a bit more touring support and stuff like that. So there wasn't a specific moment where it felt um, like, oh, the music's out in the world. It just has been so gradual the whole time. Yeah, like a trickle down. Yeah, really slow trickle down. Cool. And I guess that sort of leads to the next question about your creative process. And I would say that that would be one of the things that we bonded over in the beginning, like our, the way we put our work into the world. So I wanted to ask you about your creative process. Do you have like a structure or is it kind of very sort of dependent on your mood and and your environment? I think over the years it's it's changed um but at the heart of it is the same feeling. Um when I feel like I'm truly being creative, it's like sometimes the processes change a little bit because you might be co-writing a song or as in your field like collaborating with an artisan and you know you have input from other people Mm. but at the heart of I think the moment of real creation is I think of it as like a moment of peace I don't have that a lot in my life I feel like I move really quickly and I um my mind is pretty fast-paced but writing music has always felt like this stillness you know and Mm. and that is something I always come back to and why I keep doing it, mm, why I love it so much. I I think that stillness is, um, I don't know, there's something in that, what I think that we're all looking for. And um, I always hope that the end result somehow reflects that. Cool. Do you find that you need to structure things to get things done? Or is it sort of a stream of consciousness process? 
the fact that this record has taken me about five years to finish probably answers the question. I, <laughs> if I have a deadline, I'm very good at delivering things for a deadline. But if I don't have a deadline personally, I can really take your time, take my time. Yeah. And this record has been um, a labor of love because my main career and job has been working with my brother and um, and that has taken up a lot of my time and my life. I've been doing that for 15 years now. And so making this record, I didn't, I didn't know when it was going to come out. I didn't know when I'd have a break from working, um, with Angus and Julia. And, um, and I guess, yeah, it was also about life changing enough that it was the right thing for me to do that. Mm. Cool. So in terms of writing music and setting aside time, when you know you have something to write, do you find that if you've got a, a group of people that it's easy to get sort of, you know, the show on the road? Or do you find that you prefer to sit on your own and write and then involve people? Or does every song change? A little bit of both. Like I never used to co-write with people. I always would do what you said second, which was sit by myself and then bring it to the band. But it was actually with a friend of mine, an artist called Jared James. He's a beautiful singer and songwriter from Brisbane. And we wrote a song together called Regardless. And I hadn't done any co-writing, even with my brother. Like we didn't write songs together until our fourth record. We used to just write songs separately and then bring them together and collaborate. But with Jared, I found it so fun to bring together his creativity and my creativity and completely with no concept before we entered the room it was just like okay we're gonna write a song and by the end of the day we had this song that was half him and half me and um and I loved the outcome and I started then really wanting to write with other people I found that process to be really exciting because you can't show up with a preconceived idea about where it's going to end up you just have to show up fresh and open and being vulnerable on your own is kind of easy being vulnerable with another person and sometimes people you don't know very well is really exciting and scary and I I think one of the things that I bring to the table when I'm in a co-writing session is that I feel like I'm somebody that people can trust and once they're in the room and they get a sense of safety and comfort they really open up about what they want to write about and I find often what we all want to sing about or a place we want to create from is a very similar thing. Yeah. We're not that different as humans. And no. <laughs> that's nice. Do you feel like you have like stages in the creative process that feel like more private and intimate? And then by the time you're on stage, it's kind of like you're less attached to it intimately and you're more ready for the world to see it? Yeah, it's funny actually, because I think when you're in the studio or when you're writing it's so different to being on stage by the time you get to stage the record was written three years ago or two years ago you write the song you know and then you write a bunch more and then you mix it then you master it then the label decides when is a good time to put it out which often is six months after you've finished it and then you promote it and by the time you actually get on stage and you sing the song it's lived with you for such a long time and your life has had changes and it becomes something else. And I also really like that about there are some songs I have performed at every single gig I've done. There's one song of mine called Private Lawns and I've sung it every single time I've played a show and 
it's just transformed and become something else and it's still really intimate and connective but it's more about the connection I have with the people on stage it's more about my love for the band and about us communicating with each other and communicating with the audience I would even say more than with the audience with the band like I am a huge lover of the creative space on stage and that being something that is really it will never be played the same way you play it tonight that is so exciting to me like a recording is amazing but it just sits frozen like crystallized in that moment live music is just every night everyone showing up with their own unique trajectory for that day and coming together and if you all listen it can be really spectacular or terrible <laughs> but it's gonna be something yeah awesome so I guess I'd want to talk a little bit about um, our collaboration and why you felt compelled to collaborate with someone from a completely different creative field. I think what I love about what you do and I've always loved about really beautifully made jewellery is that it's something that when you decide to have it in your life, it's with you forever, you know, hopefully. But yeah, I love this idea that there are things that are creative that can be made like a record that live with you and stay with you. And as your life changes, you look at it and it has this tendril through your life of the memories almost contained within it. The moment you chose or you connected to the piece and then how you live. It's sort of also a reflection of how I feel when I choose to wear something like the ring I'm wearing now that you've made for me, I feel like it's symbolic of the positive way I feel about myself, about myself being beautiful and being strong. And, and throughout history, we've adorned ourselves to, to lift those positive elements of our humanity out. And not all jewellery does that, but I think your label and what you create and how you create it and your ethos around it is representative of that of that feeling the idea of working together on something aside from the fact that I obviously adore you is um to bring together our two worlds and to offer something to to people who wouldn't probably know about what you make and I think I don't know I think this record is um very symbolic of uh for me like a coming of age um and I'd like to yeah, make something that can last forever with this moment. Great. I'm excited. Me too. I guess, yeah, also we've spoken about our backstories and how they're quite similar and now we're sort of delving into the symbolism of the mermaid without giving too much away of what we're doing. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to touch on that a little bit and why you think the mermaid symbolism is so fascinating today in in an age where it's been kind of vulgarised and sexualized what what you think is important about the in a way reclaiming of this symbol I give full credit to you for this um because I learned most of the um most of the history of the mermaid from your podcast (laughs) and I I found it really interesting um how the mermaid has been a representation of the way women have been treated from the dawn of time and it's been I don't know it's been playing on my mind this idea that 
mermaids now are so over-sexualized and and not across all um all of the ways that that she's used but it feels like it's a nice way I think to take back some of the really positive sides of what the mermaid represents and put it into the world in the right way rather than it being um a symbol of like um what's the girl's name again that did the podcast with you Sarah Pavelli I think Sarah so when Sarah talks about it it's this idea of like fashion culture and like Mm. too much makeup on young girls and skimpy clothing and and it isn't really what the mermaid is about it's about beauty but a different kind of beauty almost like a strength and all of the mermaid stories have their own version of bravery and strength that comes through Mm. and I think to um, reclaim some of those elements and put that into something really precious and really um, like a really one-off kind of piece of magic is exciting. And her, what I find really interesting about the genuine symbolism of the mermaid is like her untouchableness, how Mm. you can't own her. Mm. She'll slip away. Mm. But in modern day, like um, storytelling, it's all about the pretty little girl that brushes her hair and is sort of, you know, possessable in a way yeah and and who will sacrifice everything her home her family Mm. her history for a man yeah at some point a lot of women have chosen to put aside Mm. something that they've loved for this pursuit of of the other somebody else's validation of you yeah and you'll put aside a real kind of sense of who you are and just thinking about how it ties into my life in music Growing up in the music industry, there's just part of you that wants to be liked and constantly value judging yourself. And, you know, I don't know what people say about you is important and maybe even altering yourself, you know, particularly in your appearance to to be likable. And like it's fantasized femininity. So it's like the untouchable feminine, which has been spoken about, I think, through history also in Jungian psychology the problem with the you know the clash of the masculine and the feminine is that the feminine is sort of in a way um upholding morals in society and giving everyone a sort of a religious sense of direction Mm -hmm. which is why a lot of men use women to make themselves feel more like spiritual and accomplished because the woman is you know put on this I guess pedestal of moral high ground so I think it plays into what happens to women a lot which is you know be wonderful be magical be mystical and also be beautiful Mm. but don't go against the grain in a way Mm. so it's sort of a manipulative way of using the fantasy the fantastical side of a woman for the pleasure of a man I'd say if you yeah. know what I mean. I grew up loving The Little Mermaid. Yeah, so did I. Like obsessed. I knew all of the songs and actually like probably was part of the reason I first started to sing as well. You know, when yeah. she's um, singing about she's in the cave and she's finding all of the treasures. Yeah. That song was one of my all-time favorite songs as a kid and I still know all the words for it. And And it was something about Ariel that was like, it was so relatable. It was like, I'm that mischievous. Um, I just did things the way I wanted to do them. And I was a really strong young woman. And 
I, I felt like I really related to that role model. But we all got told that at the end of the day, it was really important to follow follow the man. Yeah. And now it's different, like with films like Brave and Frozen, it's like strong women um, who are the leads, who it's not about the man. The prince ends up being an idiot. It's about her and her sister and yeah. them having a relationship and, you know, and Shrek. And, you know, it's like they're showing kids that it's got nothing to do. I'm super interested to see what happens with the younger generation of women. Already I feel like my cousins who are 15 years younger than me, their way of perceiving themselves is completely different to how I felt when I was 20. And, yeah, it's nice to reframe The Little Mermaid into a into a place of it being I don't know just about the first half of the movie yeah her being that and I don't know he doesn't really give up anything no he doesn't need to (laughs) yeah according to the storyline it's like they should have met halfway you know like he should have got a scuba tank and lived under the sea or they did like weekends on under the water yeah (laughs) (laughs) exactly there's no chats about compromise no but yeah, it's funny. I mean, doing this collaboration has made me think more and more about mermaids than I've ever thought about them. But I realize how prevalent they've been throughout my life mm. as a symbol and really the kind of damage they've done in a way. And it's got nothing to do with the inherent value of a mermaid or what, you know, what she represents has actually got to do with how she's been used as a symbol to push and idea onto us yeah which is then hard to undo but maybe we'll get somewhere with this storytelling yeah maybe thank you for listening to part one of this interview with julia stone on the cleopatra's bling podcast for more information on julia follow her on instagram at julia stone and be sure to check out her upcoming album 60 summers released this coming february Our jewellery collection is now online on cleopatrasbling.com. Each piece comes with a signed card from both Julia and I. Sign up to the newsletter to be amongst the first to hear about part two of this very exclusive interview. This podcast was produced by Liam Goff and the Cleopatra's Bling team with original music by Cameron Elva. If you liked the show, share it with a friend and leave us a few stars on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you're signed up to the newsletter on cleopatrasbling.com to keep up with the newest updates on all things Cleopatra's Bling. Until next time, stay curious.